Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast at the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. But anyway, we're going to take off and get started this morning, and we're going to start with, the, with thinking about threats. Have you ever been threatened? Probably almost everybody in here has been threatened. Now, it may not have been a serious threat. It may have been from your parents growing up. You know what? If you don't stop it, or do you just wait till your daddy gets home? I'm going to tell him what happened. That's, that's a kind of a threat. It may have been a threat from one of our peers that said to us, well, if you do such and such and so and so, I'm going to kill you. Or it may have been from our employer. If you don't change something, I'm going to have to let you go. Now, the thing about threats is there are some that are more serious than others. A, a, a threat that comes from our employer, for example, that says he may have to let us go is a whole lot more serious of a threat than the one that my wife used to get from her dad. He used to always tell her, Donna, if you don't stop it, I'm going to rip your head off and throw it in your face. Well, it's impossible. It can't happen. And, and so that wasn't really a serious threat. The, the, the seriousness of the threat has to do with the reality of it and the ability of the person making the threat to carry it out. And I hope that you will agree with me this morning that there is no one who is more capable of carrying a threat out than God. When God makes a threat, it's a very real threat. It's something that you need to take seriously. And so this morning, as we get back into the book of Malachi, we are going to look at what I believe is maybe one of the ugliest and most serious threats that God makes in the Scripture. I want you to go with me, Malachi chapter 2. If you haven't been with us, Malachi is that little book right in front of the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. Malachi being in the Old, Matthew being the first book in the New. Malachi chapter 2, we're going to just read all the way through our little passage this morning, and then I will come back and hit the high points of it. Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It says, listen, you priest, this command is for you. Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you have not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices, and I will throw you on the manure pile. Then at last you will know that it was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring life and peace, and that's what I gave them. This required reverence from them, and they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They did not lie or cheat. They walked with me, living good and righteous lives, and they turned many from lives of sin. The words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God. And people should go to him for instruction, for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. But you priests have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You have corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all people. For you have not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way that you have carried out my instructions. And we will stop right there. So, 
What is the nature of the threat? I said we're going to talk about a threat. Well, first of all, the threat is being made very specifically to someone. And who he's threatening, interestingly enough, are the priests. Those who he has called. Those he has set aside to be responsible for the spiritual welfare of his people. That's who he's talking to. He said, this is for you, you priest. And the threat that God is, is using against them is really ugly. As a matter of fact, if you read this in the Hebrew, there is no way to make it clean enough to church, for, for church, if I'm being honest with you. But God is basically saying here, you priest, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to get the manure from your offerings, your sacrifices, I'm going to smear it on your face, and I'm going to throw you on the manure pile. I mean, that is an ugly, very visual kind of threat. And he goes on to say that, that not only will he do that, but he is going to curse both them and their descendants. And so I think if you kind of get through the visual part of this down to the actual threat, what God is saying here is that he's going to remove every blessing from them. Okay, that's the curse. He is going to defile them. That's the manure. And he is going to cast them away as something odious and disgusting and completely useless. Brothers, coming from God, that's a threat. That is not what you want to hear from the Lord. And, and, and to understand what would trigger a threat like that, especially towards those who, who God has set aside to serve Him, I think that we need to understand a little bit about who He's talking to. He said, this is for you, you priest. And then He talks about this covenant of Levi. Now, one of the things you need to understand is that not all Levites were priests, but all priests were Levites. In other words, all priests came from the tribe of Levi. Didn't mean that everybody from the tribe of Levi was a priest, but every priest was from the tribe of Levi. And so he talks about the covenant of the Levites, and he said, I'm making this threat because I want to keep that covenant that I've made with the Levites in place. What's he talking about? I want you to go to Exodus with me. Exodus chapter 32, verse 15. Exodus chapter 32, verse 15. And this is a fairly lengthy little passage. We're going to read, read through about verse 29. I just think we need to do that. Exodus chapter 32, beginning verse 15. Now... To give you just a little background as you turn there, this, what we're going to read this morning is the tail end of the story where Moses went up the mountain to receive the law from God. And as he comes down the mountain, uh, Aaron has made a golden calf. And all of the people are worshiping a golden calf and they're having a big pagan feast. And this is where we pick up. Exodus chapter 32 beginning verse 15. It says, Then Moses turned and went down the mountain. And he held in his hands the two, two stone tablets inscribed with the ter terms of the covenant. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. And these tablets were God's work. The words on them were written by God himself. When Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them, he exclaimed to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. But Moses replied, no, it's not the shout of a victory nor the wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of a celebration. And when they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and he burned with anger. And he threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. 
And he took the calf they had made and burned it. And then he ground it into powder and threw it in the water and forced the people to drink it. Now, brothers, he was mad. Verse 21. Finally, he turned to Aaron and demanded, What did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? Aaron was left in charge. Don't be upset, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, whosoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And they brought it to me. And I simply threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Brothers, when I was four years old, I could make up a better story than that. He's reaching. Verse 25. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control, much to the amusement of their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and shouted, All of you who are on the Lord's side, come here and join me. And here it is, guys. And all of the Levites gathered around him, the whole tribe of Levi. And Moses told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each of you take your swords and go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other. Kill everyone, even your brothers, friends, and neighbors. And the Levites obeyed Moses' commands, and about 3,000 people died that day. And then Moses told the Levites, Today you have ordained yourself for the service of the Lord. For you obeyed him even though it meant killing your own sons and brothers. Today you have earned a blessing. This is one of those passages that doesn't sit well with our modern sensibilities, and I will confess that to you. But you have to understand at what a critical point these people were at. They had cried out to God for relief from their slavery in Egypt. God had sent Moses to deliver them. God had been with them every step along the way, even carrying them through the Red Sea as if on dry ground and, and closing the sea over Pharaoh and his army. And they have barely gotten out of the land of Egypt when Moses goes up to meet with the Lord. And while he and his assistant Joshua are up meeting with the Lord on, on the mountain, the people decide they can't trust the Lord. The people decide that rather than following God, the God who had delivered them, the God who had already done multiple miracles for them, they said, you know what, rather than that, Rather than, than this risky approach of following God, we just want to go back where it's comfortable. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back where we, where we knew what we had. This is a, a real dangerous point. Either God's people somehow are going to be persuaded to go ahead with Him and be His people. Be a people who would become a testimony for God throughout many, many generations, or they're just going to go back and be one more group of pagan people that go, get lost in the great mix of history. That's how it's going to be. I think Moses recognizes the moment. I think God recognizes the moment and something big has to happen. And Moses calls forth and says, who is for the Lord? The Levites stand up, say, we're for the Lord. Moses said, all right, go through the camp and, and, and there must be bloodshed about this. The people must learn. That to be God's people, you cannot turn away from him. So the Levites stood with God against their own flesh and blood in order, guys, to preserve them as a people of God. So God made a covenant with them. 
that the Levites would always be his ministers. And throughout many, many generations, that's exactly how it was. The Levites were the one who set up the tabernacle of God. They were the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant. They were responsible for the worship of the whole community. But by Malachi's time, the priests were no longer standing up for God. And we know that that's true because in Malachi chapter 1, it says that the people were, were bringing all kinds of offerings to God that were completely out of, out of line. They were bringing in blind and lame and diseased animals and, and, and presenting them as their best to God. They were basically giving God their coals and leftovers and keeping the best for themselves. And so what we can see is that the people had grown apathetic towards God and the priest had grown apathetic towards God with them. And there was no one who was really honoring God the way that God has to be honored. And the whole point of Malachi, the book as a whole, is that he wants them to repent. And repentance always has to begin, guys, really at the top. It really, really does. Repentance has to begin with the leaders who in turn will call the people to repentance. And what he wants them to do is he wants to get them to being back of men of God who will live in integrity and speak for him and stand for him. The way the Levites had stood for him back in Moses' day. So if you're with me in Malachi chapter 2, let's look at verse 5 through 8. We'll break this down a little bit closer. I probably didn't tell you to hold your place in Malachi, but if you're smart, you did it anyway. Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. He talks about the covenant. The purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring life and peace, and that is what I gave them. And this required reverence from them. This is the priests. This is the leaders. This is the Levites. This required reverence from them. And they greatly revered me, and they stood in awe of my name, and they passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They did not lie or cheat. They walked with me, living good and righteous lives, and they turned many from lives of sin. That was God's purpose in the, in the Levitical covenant. The, the purpose of a priest was that they would model the life of God and teach the ways of God so that the people could enjoy the blessings of God. That's what the whole purpose was. And God said, this is what I put in place with the Levites, and this is how I, they, they lived it out. But, but now, they have come to this place where the Levites are no longer living like that. As a matter of fact, I think the key verse here is in verse 7. This, this describes the right relationship between the priest and the people. He says in verse 7 that the words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God and the people should go to him for instruction. For the priest is the messenger of the God of heaven's armies. The whole problem that we have here is that the priest had lost sight of what it was that God had tapped them for. The priest had lost sight of God's purpose for them. And they were no longer modeling the life of God. They were no longer teaching the truth of God. Instead, they were allowing compromise on every side. And, and, and the point is, is that both the priest and the people had grown so apathetic 
towards God that they had actually become disrespectful, both as leaders and as a nation. And that is the reason for the threat that God has made that we saw in the first four verses of this chapter. It's also evident that the priests are now disrespected by the community. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, But you priests have left God's paths. Your instruction have caused many to stumble into sin. You've corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people. For you have not obeyed me, but have shown favoritism in the way that you carry out my instructions. God's saying, listen, I've already done something here. He said the priest ought to be the most respected among the people, but instead the people... They, they disrespect the priest. And God says, this is my doing for all intents and purposes. God had made the priest of that day kind of like, and I, I mean no offense by this, but you know, stereotypes are there for a reason. And, and he had made the priest of that day kind of like politicians and lawyers in our day. If someone's going to tell a joke, even in mixed company, it's usually going to be about a politician or a lawyer. It, these are just groups that right now in our nation's history, we don't have the, the greatest respect for because it seems like they're not standing for anything. Or if they are standing for something, there is a lot of corruption in the system somewhere. And so these are people that we don't respect. That's the way the priest had become. They had become, as far as God was concerned, morally corrupt and practically useless. Now, we don't know how they arrived at that place. The Bible doesn't tell us how they got there. It just simply says that this was the state of affairs. But I've got to tell you something this morning. I have a strong theory for how they got to this place. How did they move from being men of God who modeled the ways of God and taught the Word of God and lived lives of integrity to the place where they're looked at like a bunch of politicians and lawyers. I think I know how they got there. Any of you guys know anything about football? When I went to school, my mom's probably going to recognize this. I'm going to try not to say the name of the school. But I went to a small school, and we, we had a district of about I don't know, seven or eight other little small towns that we played in football every year. One of these towns that we played was serious about their football. Dude, I mean they were serious about their football. Serious. They didn't have homecoming, ever. Because homecoming took the boys' minds off football. They expected their team to be not just good, but great. And their team was great most years. Almost every year, most generally, they won district. If they didn't win, they were right at the top. Usually they won, and they went towards the state playoffs, and they won several state titles. I mean, they were serious. And this went on not just for two or three years, but for a matter of several decades, that they were this football powerhouse. But you know... Over a period of decades, you have coaching changes, and sometimes that doesn't work out. And it came to pass that a coach came to town, and that particular year, he didn't quite win district. And, and that critical game that he lost that cost them the district championship, boy, it left a sour taste in the people's mouths. And I know that it left a sour taste in their mouth 
Because when he got home from the football game, it was out of town that night. When he got home from the football game that night, his front yard was filled with for sale signs. I say that to you to say this. People have a way of letting their leaders know how they feel about things. They do. Ordinary people always have a way to send a message to their leaders. And I'm going to tell you something. The leaders get the messages. They hear what the people are saying. They really, really do. And it doesn't take them long to learn how to give the people what they want. Because if they don't give the people what they want, there is hell to pay. In my business, we call it loading the U-Haul. There's hell to pay and they know it. And so what happens is this very interesting feedback loop develops. And the feedback loop is that the people learn how to, to send their wants, their, their preferences, their desires. They learn how to let their leaders know what they want. Okay, They learn how to get that done. And the leaders learn how to give the people what they want. And so once the leaders give the people what they want, it only makes the people feel more correct in the fact that they must be asking for the right thing because the leader is doing what they want. And so it just kind of feeds on itself in this feedback loop. Now, on the surface, it, it, it will often appear to us as though the leaders are influencing the people because to some degree they really are. But, but there is another sense in which it is true that, that the people are also influencing the leaders. There is influence going on on both sides, you see. You can especially see this in Jeremiah chapter 5, this pattern that I'm talking about of, of the people influencing the leaders and the leaders in turn reinforcing the people. Jeremiah chapter 5, hold your place in Malachi. Jeremiah's... A few chapters back towards the front in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 5 beginning verse 1. I'm going to skip around here and try to keep this to a minimal. But I would uh, encourage you to read all of chapter 5 at your leisure. Jeremiah chapter 5 beginning at verse 1. It says, Run up and down every street in Jerusalem, says the Lord. Look high and low, search throughout the city. If you can find even one just and honest person, I will not destroy the city. But even when they are under oath, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, they're still telling lies. Lord, you're searching for honesty. You struck your people, but they paid no attention. You crushed them, but they refused to be corrected. They are determined with faces set like stone. They have refused to repent. This is the condition of the people. The, the, the Lord is speaking to the, to, to the prophet Jeremiah and he says the people, even though they are speaking God's name and they are taking oaths in God's name, they're doing what they want to do. They're not paying any attention to what God wants. Verse, verse 4. But then I said, what can we expect from the poor? What can we expect, in other words, from the people? They are ignorant. They don't know the ways of the Lord. They don't understand God's laws. So I will go and speak to their leaders. Surely they know the ways of the Lord and understand God's laws, but the leaders too, as one man, had thrown off God's yoke and broken his chains. Now skip down to verse, 
uh, 30, I believe. Yeah, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. Let's just skip down to the end of this chapter and see how he closes it out. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30. Here's how he closes out the chapter. A horrible and shocking thing has happened in this land. The prophets give false prophecies and the priests rule with an iron hand. Worse yet, my people like it that way. The prophets were telling the people what they wanted to hear. The priests were reinforcing what the prophets had to say. And the people were eating it up. That's the pattern he's describing. That's the feedback loop I'm describing to you this morning. So what does that have to do with us today? What does that have to do with with people attending the Cowboy Church of Ellis County here in 2019? Well, we are living, brothers and sisters, in an era of celebrity pastors that are reaching vast numbers of people. I'm not talking about a few thousand. I'm talking uh, today it's very common to see churches of 10 or 20 or even 50,000 and more members. It's, it's more, more members in churches than we have in the city. And there's nothing wrong with that in, in and of itself. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But, but what is wrong is the way that, that many of these churches have arrived at the place of having so many people. And I'm not saying they all have gotten there the same way. But, but there is a remarkable pattern that runs through many of them. And it goes back to many people, but the best known person probably who has kind of brought us to this place. And I, 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 I ask you to please not misinterpret what I'm going to say. I, I do not have any particular issue with the gentleman I'm about to speak of. I I don't necessarily have great theological issues with him, but I do have issues with the methodology by which he's arrived at the place where he's at. And, and, And the most famous person associated with all of this is Rick Warren from Saddleback Church. And the way that that he got where he got, and I think it was birthed out of a good heart, honestly. I think that it was. I think that many of his materials continue to be good materials. But he began his church by asking a question. And this is of record. It's not anything I'm making up. You can go find it out very easily. He began his church by asking this question. Why aren't people coming to church? That's what he wanted to know. Why? He was in California. And he looked around and he said, why is it that so many people are not coming to church? That's where he, that, that's where he started from. And so he actually, he actually went and he did surveys of hundreds of people. And he wanted to find out in these surveys why they didn't attend church. And he would also ask them, what kind of church would you attend if you were to go? And three strands began to emerge out of all of these surveys. And, and the strands are these. People wanted a church where they could dress casually, where they liked the music, and where they heard positive messages. And that became the cornerstone of the church growth movement. Casual dress, modern music, and positive messages. And this was very, very effective. And many churches continue to use this model today to reach vast numbers of people. But there were those who took Rick Warren's approach which again, I think was probably birthed from, from not impure motives. He just wanted to reach people. But, but there were others who took it a step further, and there always are. You know, what the, the teacher starts at a certain point, but his disciples take it further. 
And, and so some of his disciples began to, to ask questions that were even a little deeper. That they, they didn't just ask, why aren't people coming to church? They were asking, what do people need from their church? What at a fundamental human level do people need from a church? And one of the answers that, that they came up with was that people need unconditional acceptance. People don't want to be questioned. They don't want to be confronted. They don't want to be judged. What they want to hear is that God loves them and that life is good and they are okay right where they are. No one has mastered this or refined it better than Joel Osteen. He is, and again, I'm not trying to, to, to make it anything out of this. I just simply want you to understand what's going on. But Joel Osteen, you will never hear a negative thing come out of that man's mouth, period. And if you get him really backed up into a corner where he needs to answer a real hard question, a lot of times he's going to wiggle out of that corner. Because he does not want to be perceived as saying anything negative about anything or anyone at any time. And the result of his approach is that he reaches tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people, every single week. And it's no surprise. Because he is giving them exactly what they want. They want to be stroked and affirmed and to be told that they are good and they are okay and God loves them and everything is fine. They love him because he reinforces what they themselves want to hear. Now, here's the question. What if God wanted, instead of accepting us unconditionally... And by the way, I do believe that God loves everybody. Please don't hear me wrong. And I believe that God sees value in everybody. There's truth in that. But, but what if on some occasions and under certain conditions, such as the people in Malachi lived under, that God wanted to confront someone? What if God wanted to challenge someone? What if God was threatening to judge someone? If that were the case, where would we go in our world today to hear that message? If we were living as Malachi's people were, outside of the will of God, maybe even disrespecting God without knowing it, where would we go to hear about that? Not just anywhere. Not just anywhere. Because in today's world, the, the, the best and biggest churches many times are geared to tell people what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. And I am not saying this morning, this, this morning, guys, to run any other church down or to elevate myself for this church. I am telling you this because it's true. And in your heart of hearts, you know it's true. You absolutely know it's true. But I want to remind you this morning of the purpose of a spiritual leader. Malachi chapter 2 verse 7, it's the, it's the core verse we're looking at this morning. He says, the words of a priest's lips should preserve the knowledge of God and people should go to him for instruction for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies. It is the purpose of a minister, the purpose of a pastor or a preacher to preserve the knowledge of God and live it out. And it's the purpose of people who listen to them to seek him out and receive godly instruction for him from him.
A preacher is above all to be a messenger of God and to communicate truths from God's Word that God would have you to know and understand, all of which are contained right here in this book, the Scripture. Now, if there are churches out there who start from the premise, what can we do to make people happy and comfortable, versus starting from the premise of what does God's Word say, if there are churches that start with their plumb line uh, uh, with people rather than the Word of God, what that means is that we need to be very, very careful about where we go to hear spiritual truth. Because if it is the goal to tell people what they want to hear versus just simply expounding what the Word of God says, there's a big difference between those two things. One of them is going to be a message from God. The other one is going to be a message that just wants to get us in the front door. Vast, vast difference. And, and so I want to very quickly in closing this morning share three truths with you that will help you get it right in terms of where you take your spiritual nutrition from in terms of where you worship truth number one very quickly the word of God is not taught everywhere it's easy peasy the word of God's not taught everywhere you just need to leave here knowing that that's true as much as I would like to stand here and say any place you go they're all equally equally going to love God and we're all trying to get to the same place and all of that but the truth of the matter is there are many churches who are preaching something other than the Word of God. They may be preaching social justice. They may be preaching psychology. They may be preaching politics. They may be pre preaching community activism. They may have all sorts of places from which they start. But, but the thing that holds them all together is it's humanism. They're starting with human needs rather than with the Creator and the God whom we should be worshiping. Truth number two. Just because you like what you hear doesn't mean it's the truth. Man, I, over the years I have seen so many people hop around from church to church because they don't like what they hear there, but they want to go over here and, and, and hear what they want to hear. It, it's one thing if you want to hear the Word of God. But I live in sinful flesh just like all the rest of you do. I do. I've got my foibles and my weaknesses just like you. And over the years, I have discovered that there are a lot of things that the Word of God says that I wish it didn't say. And there are a lot of things the Word of God doesn't say that I wish it did say. And there have been times in my life where I really wanted to find a church that didn't tread too much into those things in my life that the Word of God in a, addressed in a very direct fashion because I didn't want to hear it, right? The very first church I ever attended, I sought that church out because I knew they didn't teach about hell. Well, I wish hell wasn't in the Word of God. I do. But I opened it up, and Jesus talked about it more than anybody else did. And so just because you like what you hear doesn't mean it's truth. Truth number three. When it comes to the Word of God, we'd all better be Bereans. You know what a Berean is? Over in Acts chapter 17... Paul and Silas are basically on a mission trip. And they're going from place to place. They're preaching the gospel. They're telling people about Jesus Christ and that he is the Messiah. And I'm not going to read all of Acts chapter 17. I'm going to leave that for you and your connect groups. But 
they went and preached in a place called Thessalonica. And there were a lot of Jewish people there. And Paul was proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah and that, that God raised him from the dead and that they, that they no longer had to follow the Old Testament law because of what Jesus did. And the Jews didn't like it. They didn't like it so much as that they, they, they chased Paul and Silas out of town. And Paul and Silas went to the next place down the road, which is called Berea. And I want you to look at Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Well, in fact, we'll back up and catch verse 10. We'll get context. Acts chapter 17, verse 10. It said, That very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. And they searched the Scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Every time they heard a word from a preacher, they went to the Word of God to see, is this man telling me the truth? I'm telling you guys, in the day and age in which we live, we had all better be Bereans. The days in which you can just flip on your television or just visit, visit any old church that's on the street and think that you're going to hear the Word of God taught as it ought to be taught, those days certainly are not here. And, and, and listen... The Jews in this book, in, this, in, in Thessalonica, that ran Paul and Silas out of town, what did they succeed in doing? They didn't succeed in accomplishing anything except they missed the Messiah. And they became active opponents of God. Well, I think that's about enough said about all of that. The bottom line is that in Malachi's day, there was a conspiracy between the priest and the people. The people wanted the priest to teach them what they wanted to hear, and the priest wanted to be popular, and that's the agreement that they had, but God was having none of it. And he said, I'm going to make you priests among the most disrespected of any people because of what is going on unless you repent. Guys, as a Bible teacher, I have to be very careful about what I teach. But as God's people, you have to be very careful about what you expect me to teach. Because if either one of us fail in our task that God has given us, me to teach and you to receive appropriate instruction, then something's going to break somewhere. And we as a people and we as a culture are going to suffer because of it. And one of the reasons that I wanted us to look at the book of Malachi together is because I think that's where we are. I think in many places that the people are really failing to look for true instruction the priests or the preachers are giving them what they want, and we as a Christian culture are suffering because of it. And so we go back and we look at things like Malachi to remember how important it is that we are truly seeking out the very words of God, and we are looking for leaders who reflect the Word of God in their lives so that we can become the people of God and enjoy the blessings that God would have us to enjoy together. Let's pray with one another. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning in Jesus' name. Thank you for the book of Malachi. I thank you for those, Father God, who stand up in difficult places and difficult circumstances proclaiming your word at very great risk and very great cost to themselves. While we sometimes believe that we are 
becoming persecuted here in America, and perhaps that may be true. The reality is there are places in the world where men and women who stand for the Word of God are just receiving brutal, brutal treatment. Lord, we pray for them. And we pray that it might not happen in this nation. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for leaders and teachers and men of God to stand up and to proclaim your word without compromise. And we pray, Lord, that as your people, that we would be the kind of people of integrity like those Bereans who are seeking and searching the word of God to see if what we are hearing is genuinely what you are saying and genuinely what you want us to hear. Father, we pray that we would become a people of your word. We pray that we would become a people of your spirit. And we pray, Father God, that we would be prepared when you come for us or when you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.